Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, where we believe that feeling great and living a long time is possible and that your healthcare should help you get there. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Wenzel. My hope is simple, that this show will help you along your journey to becoming the healthiest, strongest, and most powerful version of you possible. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody. This episode is going to be um, incredibly valuable long-term for you. Um, If you are a woman who has ever considered hormone therapy, has a lot of questions about it, and just wants to know more of the science, the research, and the data, the technicalities, this episode is definitely going to um, answer those questions for you. In this episode, Jen Justice and I dig into the historical context of why in the world the Women's Health Initiative was even funded in the first place. We then dig into the basic structure of the study so you can understand what was actually happening during the study. And then, of course, we dig into the results. And lastly, some practical take-home advice based on these findings. We know that you're going to enjoy it. So let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This week, I am super excited to be sitting across from... Somebody who is near and dear to my heart, uh, and somebody who, if you are in the Brentwood MD family, you are very uh, familiar with her. She is commonly mistaken for a superhero because her name (laughs) is so amazing. Um, But she is uh, equal parts genius and equal parts um, nurturing, and I couldn't be more excited to have her on my team. And uh, I know anybody who has the opportunity to be Uh, taken care of by her would say the same thing uh please welcome jen justice well thank you newly board certified nurse practitioner my right arm the complete uh operational side of everything that i do um and i couldn't do what i do without her i try to tell her that almost daily (laughs) (laughs) um because it's true and um i'm really excited to bring her in uh, to the podcast so that people beyond the walls of this clinic can experience some of the wisdom that she uh, brings to the table, some of her insights, uh, perspectives, and expertise. Um, today's episode is all about the trial that changed women's health forever, and it really is that significant of a trial. It's called the Women's Health Initiative. We're going to dive into that in just a minute. Uh, but I wanted to give Jen an opportunity to kind of tell everybody who doesn't know who she is um, just a little bit about where she comes from, how she finds herself in this position, uh, and then we'll jump right into the meat of the episode. So, Jen, tell everybody. <laughs> How does somebody end up with a name like Jen Justice? Oh, my. Well, <clears throat> I have my husband to thank for that. <laughs> I, yeah, I get that a lot, that I'm, I'm a Marvel superhero, but um, just by name, that's for sure. Well, I'm pretty certain when you get off of work, you go solve crimes. and Yeah, hang my cape up. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, thanks for the, the wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. I've, I've been a registered nurse for 23 years Um 
recently graduated nurse practitioner training and, and school and passed my boards, which was a huge accomplishment and and really became passionate about women's health um, kind of before becoming a nurse practitioner, but definitely during um, you know, through my clinical experience, we do women's health rotation and um, pediatric rotation and adult and gerontology rotations. And, and that women's health rotation, while it was really focused around women and their pregnancies, um, we also saw a lot of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome and issues uh, perimenopausally and postmenopausally. And that, you know, really opened my eyes to the complexity of women and women's health. Um, and how intricate it is and, and the needs of, of women throughout their lifespan. And then in my adult and geriatric rotation, the same thing. Um, although it was quite challenging, you know, coming from what we do here at Brentwood MD um, into that traditional medical model because, uh, number one, you have about 15 minutes with each patient. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. And you, you cannot create a lot of change or momentum with them in that short amount of time. Um, but... You know, uh, coming in with a lot of symptoms like hot flashes and depression and, you know, all of these uh, symptoms that women are faced with when their hormones change and, you know, unfortunately not being able to use hormones or they really weren't looked upon favorably in that in that model. So women would be started on antidepressant medications and all of these things that we kind of know can work, don't work, (laughs) don't work Mm -hmm. long term. And and really are better off served by uh, optimizing their hormones. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you and I met, gosh, five years ago now. Um, hard I was to believe under the impression there'd be long. no math while we were recording. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that been sounds a while. About, that sounds about right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we both have had some uh, extensive experience in the obesity space, dealing mm-hmm. with medical bari- bariatrics, and um, um, during that time went to an awesome conference and I remember it clearly, um, sitting next to you and learning all about bioidentical hormones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time being about 46, perimenopausal, looking at you saying, put me on these things right now. Yeah. Well, you cannot unknow this information yeah. and how powerful it is for women. Yeah, I remember walking out of that hotel uh, at the end of the conference with you as we're kind of leaving the conference and looking at you in the lobby saying, Jen, we can't unknow what we just learned. Right. Very powerful. Yeah, it was. Th- th- those moments don't happen all the time, mm-hmm. um, especially in one's professional life. Mm-hmm. But that was a critical moment in my professional career, where now knowing what I know, I feel like the responsibility now to first of all become a, a master mm-hmm. of this topic, um, but not for my own like feeling good about myself, but so that I could transfer that knowledge, insight, wisdom, strategy to people who are really suffering. Right. Um, and so that was a really critical moment for both of us. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond excited to, to be able to do what we do in our practice. Um, and, you know, we're, we're launching um, a formally the, the female hormone optimization program. I mean, we've been doing it for a long time, but not really creating a bunch of content around it right. uh, over the past year and a half or so we've been really focused on trying to get our head around a men a, a male 
uh, hormone journey and, and, and what that means for men and, and how do we want to structure a program where we could be really impactful to men who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, how, how amazing has that been? Oh, I, it's the best part of my job to hear yeah. these men come back and they're And you for know, the last six months, so you and better. I are like, okay, how do we do this for women? <laughs> right. uh, that is the next um, thing on the list. And, and we have been really spending a lot of time thinking about and, and planning and, and structuring a program specifically designed for women. Mm-hmm. And I think before we even begin the journey of creating content and, and educating and, and um, giving our thoughts about these topics, I think it was very clear early on for you and I that we needed to start with kind of the trial that really for men and women mm-hmm. really changed the game. Right. Um, uh, some for better, some for worse, um, not necessarily the trial's fault, um, but created a lot of confusion and a lot of misinterpretation and ultimately um, made an already complex situation even harder to sort through. And um, I hope that today, uh, and you know, for, for those that listen to this show, we don't always go super technical. But today is going to be a little bit of a technical episode, um, and it's intentionally designed to um, serve anybody who would be a little skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a healthy amount of skepticism is healthy, um, and I think that my hope in the end is that you'll be able to take our conversation today, the the timeline, the context, um, um, and be able to walk away with actionable uh, strategies to to make decisions about what do hormones mean for my life moving forward. Right, and um, we we hope that that's um, what we're able to achieve. You know, especially considering both you and I started as skeptics too. I mean, we yeah. went to this conference and we're like, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of like noise coming from this, but I don't really know. I wasn't really taught about it. Um, I have a general sense that they're not safe. Um, if they were safe, why wasn't I taught about them? I mean, so there, there was an inherent bias to be a non-believer to begin with, which I think is what was so profound about the experience for me mm-hmm. uh, was I went in wanting to not to be like, oh, yeah, yeah no, I knew this. <laughs> like this, this is this is all like not this is not what we need to be doing. Right. Um, but I walked away completely blown away. Right. And um, I think that happens when you have a genuine desire for truth. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all we're trying to do is uncover what is the truth around this, eliminating as many bias uh, and misconceptions uh, as possible mm-hmm. along the way. Um, so let's start with... Um, some historical context, okay. like what is the WHI trial? Can you? Well, the Women's Health Initiative is what it stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was a very large randomized controlled trial, and mm-hmm. so um, for the hormone side, um, it also had an observational component to it, um, and uh, it was a government funded study, which I think is important because mm-hmm. a lot of drug trials are funded by drug companies, which um, open them up for bias, right? Yep. 
And um, so this particular trial, as we delved into the history of it. It's an NIH. Yeah. NIH. National Institutes of mm-hmm. Health, which is a government agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we, we learned a lot about the history of, of the trial recently. Um, yeah. yeah the, the, and I think it's worth spending a minute or two talking about the historical mm-hmm. context because it's so relevant. Um, as you and I know, because we're nerds and we pay attention to this stuff, that people don't just create studies because they're just super curious right. and they want to do it for the betterment of mankind. Mm-hmm. There is always, always some sort of political or economical force driving either pharmaceutical companies, the private sector, or government agencies to do more research around a topic. And it's, it's, it's driven by an economic engine mm-hmm. or a political engine or both. Right. And so then you have to say, well, why in the world would the, would the federal government put so much attention on women's health to the tune of 45 or 46 centers across the country, mm-hmm. an estimated $300 million research project that's going to extend for 20 years uh, and really negatively impact a lot of other government-funded grant-type mm-hmm. research projects. Very disruptive. What was going on during that time frame? And you and I really unpacked a lot of history that I wasn't aware of mm-hmm. about the State of the Union um, really in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. uh, politically. Right. And so typically women were not uh, elected into um, political Senate, positions. House. Right. I, I, I'm not a political historian to, to know exactly the percentages of female presence, but mm-hmm. it was very low, if not zero. Right. Um, and, you know, although we, we in America have... Uh, done a lot for equality um, and we still have a long way to go Um, certainly we have made large strides in the equality between men and women but in in an environment where it's the mid 80s um, there really are no powerful women in in the political arena Mm -hmm. Um, it was very much a a good old boy club Mm -hmm. Um, I think we we unpacked that only about 13% of grant dollars by the federal government for research was towards women's health right. in the mid-'80s. Um, and of that 13% of those dollars, and these are 13% of big numbers. So, I mean, these are big numbers, but still relative, it's a big discrepancy. Yeah, They're disproportionately around the, the fertility, pregnancy, um, Issues, yeah. which is an important thing to kind of yeah. iron out. But there were zero studies. There was zero insight into the long-term health, morbidity, mortality of women beyond childbearing age. Right. Which is really embarrassing. Yeah. And, um, and they were seeing back then a pattern of chronic diseases that were claiming women's lives, right? Mm-hmm. Cardiovascular disease, dementia, hip fractures, all of these things that... that hey, it's we, just part of getting old. Right, that we just kind of put up with as, as women. And and um, they, I, I believe, looked back and said, whoa, 
what can we do to uh, research this to see how we can impact women's health long term? Yeah, well, I, I, I took some notes here as we did some homework. And, you know, it really started with um, the, the, the um, there were some pivotal political figures that ended up uh, in the Senate, I mm-hmm. believe, who started looking at these annual reports from the NIH saying, how come there aren't more women-related issues being pursued, researched? Um, we, need, we need more of a representation of an equal representation of women's health mm-hmm. as, uh, and men's health. And in 1990, I mean, this feels like, if I didn't give you the timeline, you would think, oh, well, this was probably like, in the 20s. Right. <laughs> it just feels like... It's not that far. ...yesteryear. But we're talking about 1990. Mm-hmm. In 1990, the Office of Research on Women's Health uh, was uh, established. And in 1991, the Office of Women's Health um, was founded. Interestingly, and I believe it was the first uh, President Bush who appointed... And this is a very significant milestone uh, on the timeline of women's health. Mm-hmm. He appointed the very first female director of the NIH. Wow. Which is crazy. And her name was uh, Bernadine Healy, Dr. Bernadine Healy. And she is a critical character in the timeline because she proposed um, the Women's Health Initiative um, so that we could put serious dollars and serious attention long-term um, on the effects of lifestyle behaviors and hormone therapy on women's health um, and what this meant. And, and this, was, this was huge. And so in October of 1992, the Women's Health Initiative was officially funded mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and launched. Do you want to talk a little bit about the structure or do you want me to talk about it? You can. Go ahead. Okay. So basically, there's an observational arm and there's a clinical trial arm. Correct. And this women's health initiative wasn't just about hormones. It was about the effect of postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy, one. Two, dietary modifications, mm-hmm. specifically the effects of a low-fat diet on long-term morbidity and mortality. And third, calcium and vitamin D supplementation. All three of these things, hormones, diet, and calcium and vitamin D, we were really the primary outcomes. We were looking at what are the effects of these three um, topics and the long-term effects on women for coronary artery disease, hip fractures, invasive breast cancer, and colon cancer. These were... um, and these weren't arbitrarily picked. The, these are the things that kill women. Right. You know, I mean, heart attack, stroke, breast cancer, colon cancer, and fractures, mm-hmm. complications of fractures. Mm-hmm. And they still are. Right. The I was going to say, those have not changed. No. So, um, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, th- they were able to, how many women? 100 and. Gosh, I don't know the exact 160, number. 160,000. Yeah, it was I, huge. Likely not duplicatable. In a 2019 environment, um, that is a massive amount of women who were uh, 50 to 75, maybe 74, 69 to 75, something like that. Um, And put into this uh, trial, the 
the hormone piece, we're not going to dive into the dietary modification and the calcium and vitamin D supplementation. We're most interested in, because the primary reason for the WHI trial to be launched in the early 90s was that there was a recent surge of physicians because there had been some observational studies that had recently Mm -hmm. come out um, suggesting that, hey, uh, hormone replacement therapy is a big deal and we need to uh, think about putting women, postmenopausal women, on this therapy to reduce these killers of women. So that was the pri- although there were other two other arms the primary reason this thing took off was the hormone. Right. And I think in large part as we look back 20 years from now it's still the thing it's most commonly known for. Like when you mm-hmm. think WHI trial you think oh hormone replacement and um that was the purpose. Right. Um so 160,000 women in the in the the WHI trial as a whole 27,000 of those women were put into the hormone replacement therapy arm. And um, this is where we're going to start to get just a little bit technical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's important. And, you know, you might need to take notes. You might need to listen to this two or three times. Um, maybe we'll be able to create some cool flow chart um, timeline and, and link this into the show notes. But um, there are two – there were two – arms of the hormone trial. When you came in as a woman, um, a, a postmenopausal woman, mm-hmm. they immediately split you into one of two buckets. And it was based on whether you had a uterus or not. Correct. Right? Yep. Because women with a uterus can't take estrogen only. Right. Because of our well-documented, well-known understanding of uterine cancer. Um, with unopposed estrogen. Mm-hmm. So if you had no uterus, you got put into an estrogen-only arm. If you had a uterus, you went to estrogen plus progestin. Each one of these arms also had a placebo group. So right. they, they, they got a pill, but it wasn't the actual hormone. And they followed these two groups over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the, the outcomes are where they're interesting, but where it gets confusing is what do these outcomes mean? Right. And I think for you and I as practitioners who believe in the power of bioidentical hormones and um, are very, very convinced that they, about their safety, uh, uh, almost to a moral obligation, mm-hmm. um, I, I've been really proud of our ability to look at this very critically and unemotionally and like, really understand where a lot of this confusion comes from. So here are the basic outcomes. Uh, I've, again, I've taken some notes. And so the estrogen-only group, first of all, and we probably should have done a little bit better job of saying that this is the difference between bioidentical and synthetic. Oh, yeah. Can, can you – what's the difference between estrogen and that 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 was used in the WHI trial and and uh, what we would consider bioidentical estrogen. Right. Uh, so the estrogen that was used in the WHI is called conjugated equine or equine estrogen, which is basically a synthetic estrogen that was derived from the urine of pregnant horses. Awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Um, great. That, that doesn't make you want to sign up. I don't know. I what, know. What. And yeah, this synthetic estrogen uh, basically has, I don't know how many, what, five or six different synthetic estrogen in it. Yes. Um, to kind of emulate. Right. So it's made in a lab, mm-hmm. and it's, it's nowhere near um, what our body naturally produces as a female um, estradiol estrogen estriol and estrone, mm-hmm. which are the three different types of estrogens in our body. Now, bioidentical, on the other hand, um, is compounded in a pharmacy and is made true to the uh, molecules that our body, our ovaries So secrete. if a woman takes bioidentical estradiol, right. which is the form that we primarily use, it's the exact same molecule. It's the exact same it's molecule. It's meant to look like which is what the substance that they used, which has a brand name of Premarin. Right. Premarin is a hodgepodge of multiple synthetic variants of which estrogen. Pregnant mare urine Premarin. <laughs> that name always makes me laugh. I oh, that is funny. I that, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. So as we look through this data, it's important for the listeners to keep very front of mind mm-hmm. um, not only why was this trial important but what are they actually looking at mm-hmm. they are looking at and studying synthetic variants of progesterone and estrogen Correct. they are not looking at bioidentical that is a totally different conversation however all of the data this is the there are no studies on bioidentical because there's no money to be had there's no economic driver right um there is a lot of economic driver and political driving to figure out these synthetic variants because they're highly profitable. Mm-hmm. And so all risk or benefit of hormone therapy has been extrapolated from the data acquired from studying synthetics. Correct. That's very important. Very important. Um, because that's a question we get a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, not only our, our male patients, but our female patients are hormones safe. It's the it's most the question. question. It's, it's the question. I mean, no- I just got it last week in one of our existing patients. She was questioning again, am I on a safe form of yeah. estrogen? Well, and the reason they're asking that is because when you go into the results of the WHI trial, you see that there were some outcomes that were not ideal. Yeah. And so in the estrogen alone arm, Again, these women receiving uh, conjugated equine estrogens in um, a single dose with a single mode of um, administration. So there's no variation. In other words, did a pill work better than a cream, work better than a patch? It was an oral pill at one dose. That's it. Which, as we wrap up the talk, we'll talk about as that, that is a vulnerability of the study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we always do when we look at um, research is, okay, well, where are their strengths? Where are the weaknesses of the study? And that, that, that's a limiting factor. Right. It is what it is, but it, it is something that is uh, limiting. And so all women in this group, again, had a hysterectomy because you cannot take estrogen unopposed. Correct. So in all of these women who are in this estrogen-only trial, they have no uh, – They've all underwent a hysterectomy prior to starting the trial. It was actually stopped early. Um, And it was stopped early uh, 
and the first paper was released in the summer of 2002. So um, by the time that they got all of the women um, segmented and selected, do you remember how long the study actually was? It's seven, five years. Right. I think it was supposed to be five, but it stopped early, earlier than that. Is that right? I think it was supposed to be seven, but okay. it stopped at five. Okay. Gotcha. They stopped it early because the primary investigators felt very compelled that prolonging the, the study wouldn't change what they were already seeing, which is that the risks outweigh the benefits. Mm-hmm. And um, the primary risk that they had identified was an increased risk of stroke. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the actual numbers of this because I think it's very fascinating. Um, the official white paper that came out after they stopped um, really identified an estrogen alone group had an increased risk of stroke, but they had no increased risk of invasive breast cancer, blood clots, coronary artery disease, or colon cancer. Um, there was actually a reduction of hip fractures in this treatment group. So increased risk of stroke within the estrogen-only group really was the primary driver for stopping this arm of the study early. Um, What's interesting to me is that the dose that they use, 0.625 milligrams of um, uh, conjugated estrogens, is unless you're taking a low estrogen birth control pill, Mm-hmm. It's more estrogen than m- most of the middle or high dose estrogen birth control pills on the market. Wow. So it's unsafe to have women in a clinical trial take this dose of estrogen because of stroke, but it didn't trickle down through the pharmaceutical ranks to have women stop taking oral contraceptive pills who are taking the same amount of the same amount of same amount of the same molecule yeah because it well we won't get into all the economics of all that but that's pretty (laughs) obvious uh so the summer of 02 they stopped the trial they released this report in 2003 they officially release a black box warning for all conjugated estrogen products which basically says if you're 22 years old and perfectly healthy you can go on ahead and take these birth control pills but uh they're going to increase your risk for um, blood clots and pulmonary embolisms and strokes so don't smoke and if you have a family history of stroke don't take it that that and it gets pushed aside and um women are on these things so it's very confusing Mm -hmm. how the the results of this yielded what we what we currently have but nonetheless these are interesting here so when i look at the actual numbers and these numbers are per 10,000 treated when you looked when you look at stroke and this is the treatment group of estrogen versus the placebo group mm-hmm. there were 12 more strokes per 10,000 the actual numbers were 30. So the placebo group who didn't get any estrogen, every 10,000 people, there were 32 strokes. Wow. In the estrogen group, every 10,000, there were 44 strokes. So 12 more strokes. That's it. Yeah. I mean, one stroke is too many, but 
I think it's important because although there isn't clear in increased risk, it is it is a statistically significant increased risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like nobody had strokes and then oh, if you take estrogen, you're definitely going to have a stroke, which is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a delta of twelve more strokes per ten thousand people. Blood clots they found were a statistically insignificant. So the rest of these are. Uh, the, the next couple are statistically insignificant. In other words, so they get reported as neutral. Mm-hmm. Doesn't hurt, doesn't harm, doesn't improve, but neutral. Blood clots. They're calling it neutral, but there was actually seven more per 10,000. Um, MI, which is a heart attack, got reported as a neutral, but there was actually a reduction of five oh, per wow. 10,000. Uh, breast cancer also was reported as a neutral net effect, but there were seven less cases per 10,000 of invasive breast cancer. And there was a uh, six, and this was actually reported as a, a benefit, there were six less hip fractures per 10,000. Um, but we only get told, oh, well, we stopped it because women were having strokes. Right. Well, Okay. But let's look at all the data. We can't mm-hmm. just like blot out the data we don't like. Um, I, I just very fascinated with some of these numbers. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I'm hopeful that we can link to a, maybe some sort of graphical representation mm-hmm. of this. Because these numbers are worth understanding if you're a woman who's about to have a conversation about what, is the, what do these risks really mean for me and my well-being mm-hmm. and, you know. Um, Can you talk a little bit, too, about this, the sample of the women that they chose? I mean, obviously, these women were older, right? Yeah, you know, th- thank you for reminding me. When, when we dug through the, how these women were selected, and then when you look at the overall statistics of the women in each bucket, yeah. this is something very, very fascinating. In the estrogen alone bucket, these women were older um, in general. Uh, they were uh, heavier, mm-hmm. so their be- uh, their their baseline weight. There was more obesity, right? Which we now understand, obesogenic factors towards diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart attack, stroke, mm-hmm. cancer. It wasn't really clear in the ninety in nineteen ninety two ninety three, and they had an, a higher baseline blood pressure, which we now understand is one of the primary risk factors. I mean, right. when you talk about what are the risk factors for heart attack and stroke? Well, age, family history, smoking, diabetes, mm-hmm. hypertension. Yeah. Um, so all things being equal, you would have expected this estrogen group to have worse outcomes anyway. Right. Because they already were predisposed based on known risk factors. So this is what we were talking about briefly, where we talk about some of the limitations of the study. I mean, mm-hmm. they did the best that they could, but you have to understand the data was going to be skewed anyway because it was a heavier, unhealthier group. Right. As it pertains to stroke. Yeah. Um, and what didn't they smoke too? Some of them were smokers. I I'm believe. not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I think they accounted for the amount of smokers, um, and and I don't know that there was a big variance. Gotcha. Um, okay. So. So that was the estrogen. That's only the estrogen arm. only arm. Yeah. So back up at the top where we split the group, if you had a uterus, you don't go in the estrogen group. You go into the estrogen plus progesterone group. This group got the same exact estrogen, 6.25 
0.625 milligrams of this conjugated estrogen orally, and they got 2.5 milligrams of what we call uh, Prempro, which is uh, medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a synthetic progestin. It is not progesterone. Correct. Um, and like the estrogen conversation, we don't give people progestins. We give them bioidentical progesterone. But the study didn't give bioidentical progesterone. They gave a synthetic progestin. Now, we have to give these progestins in order to protect the uterus, and these women in this arm have a uterus, even though they're menopausal, so we have to protect that. Right. Um, this one was very interesting to me because mm-hmm. when, at least as a medical provider, and I know for you, we've had some early conversations around, but it sure seems like estrogen takes the fall. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's the bad guy. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't do hormones because estrogen's bad. Like somehow, progestin... I mean, they rob the bank w- w- multiple, like, and, and they're sitting, uh, nobody even suspects progestin. Right. But as you will see, as we dig through this data, progestin is the culprit. Yeah. I mean, they, it is the primary uh, culprit in the, some of these really not so great outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yet, estrogen takes the fall, a synthetic estrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's fascinating how the narrative gets told a certain way but the data is the data right like i'm looking at this and i'm like with a with a bias that estrogen is terrible and mm-hmm. i'm sitting here saying well i don't know there were some more strokes in some of this group that was older fatter and had higher blood pressure but it's not like the group that didn't take it didn't have strokes mm-hmm. uh and there was a lot of benefit with that estrogen group but boy uh the estrogen and progesterone group basically uh, increased risk of invasive breast cancer, increased risk of heart attack, strokes, and clots. There was no change in endometrial cancer because of the protective effect of progestins. Uh, and there was actually a reduction in hip fractures and a reduction in colon cancer. Um, the absolute numbers per 10,000 strokes, there was an increase uh, 8 per 10,000. So slightly better numbers than the estrogen alone, which was 12. Clots. This is a big one. Plus 18. Yeah. That's scary. I think it was, I mean, I don't know. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was 18 more per 10,000. And again, this progestin is what goes into all of our oral contraceptives right. that are combo. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Synthetic progestins are dangerous. Yeah. Ver- subsequent studies and subsequent papers really digging into the data here, and we don't have time for that on this particular – this is a high-level look at the WHI trial. But when you look at other subsequent evaluations of this data, it is very clear that synthetic progestin, this uh, medroxyprogesterone acetate, is the culprit, mm-hmm. the primary contributor to the bad outcomes. Um, there was an increase of 7 per 10,000 heart attacks, and there was a reduction of 5 hip fractures. So, I, you know, t- tell me, I've been rambling, you know, all these. T- tell me as a provider, tell me as a woman, tell me as a woman who is mapping out her life, considering about what the second half of life looks like mm-hmm. without hormones, 
when you look at this, being as unemotional as you can be, being a critical thinker, what does this mean for gen justice? Like, if you could, I, I mean. Well, personally, and I, and I don't think she would mind me sharing this, is my, my mom, uh, you know, recently shared with me that she went, when she went through menopause and she was a registered nurse as well, she, um, she took Prempro because mm. she. And again, that's. Premarin and Provera, that's the estrogen Correct. plus progesterone arm. Yeah. And uh, ended up with breast cancer. Now, can you make the correlation between the two? I don't know, but but it did happen. And um, for me, uh, knowing that and having that in my family history is even more important um, that the bioidentical hormones are, are, are for me. Um, you know, I, I think... I want to, number one, age gracefully. Mm-hmm. I want to live a long time. I want to have strong bones. I don't want to get dementia and Alzheimer's or heart disease or all of these chronic diseases. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this study is very enlightening. I look at it from both perspectives. Mm-hmm. I look at it from a positive perspective. There, You know, who knows if, if these women would have stayed on the on the hormones long term what data we could have ex- extrapolated from that but mm-hmm. it was unfortunate it, it had to be stopped because mm-hmm. of the negative effects um so it's a very important trial for women it's a it's a very important information um to to show that the synthetic hormones are dangerous yeah and um you know the bioidenticals are really m- safer um and and do have a lot of benefits. Yeah, I mean, even if it's observational. Yeah. Um, the the challenge, the, the 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 perfect answer is, well, we just need to craft a better study. Yeah. Where we use bioidenticals and follow it over time. The problem is that study will never be done. Right. Because there are no patents for bioidentical. Nature has the patent. Mm-hmm. There are no economic or political gains to be had by proving that bioidenticals are in fact safe yeah and good bad right or wrong it does i mean you could debate that all day long it just is what it is Mm -hmm. that study's not going to be done right and so we're left with looking at human physiology understanding that we are all uh, post-puberty hormonal creatures mm-hmm. and that the aging process in large part is affected by the decline of hormones and you know does the fundamental question is does supplementing your hormones to an optimal level once they start underproducing, does it provide more benefit than risk right and we don't have the study to prove that yeah although not at, at scale like this. Although, when you look back fifty years through through um, U.S. and European studies around hormone replacement therapy, there are zero well done studies that implicate harm in bioidentical hormones. And, right. and, and there are many that are neutral. Yeah, you know, no, not not bad, not good, kind of. Neutral, mm-hmm. and there's a handful that are pro. Yeah, um, and uh, 
you know, so the punchline is the debate will go on. Yeah. And ultimately, people are going to have to make a decision for themselves, for mm-hmm. their loved ones. What does this mean for me? Yeah. How am I going to take this information and apply it in my life to make a powerful decision that puts me in the best position to feel amazing, reduce any excess visceral fat, put distance between me and diabetes, put distance between me and cancers, be engaging, powerful um, into our seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth decades of life. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a question everybody's going to have to answer for themselves. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think there's a, a one-size-fits-all answer for everyone. Obviously, there's risk profiles. There's people bring to the table different complexities. Yeah. But for the most part, um, barring some obvious reason not to pursue it, it I, I believe it's both of our opinions that this is a conversation that needs to be had by the majority. Yeah. And unless there's some real either active cancer, profound history of a clotting disorder, um, really profound history of breast cancer, or uh, we probably ought to be thinking about the pros versus the cons. Yeah. Um, and um, But just to just blanket statement, I mean, it's just as silly to say everybody needs to be on it at the end yeah. as it is to say nobody should be on it. I right. mean, that's just silly. Yeah. Um, but finding a provider that you trust, finding yeah. somebody that's well-versed in not only the Women's Health Initiative and can explain it intelligently and objectively, um, you know, what a wonderful time to to be a woman in the, in mm. the healthcare spectrum right now. Our screening tools for cancer are top-notch. Our, you know, um, our education and, mm-hmm. and training around longevity and and health as a woman. I mean, up until the Women's Health Initiative, women were just treated like small men. Yeah. Health-wise. Yes. You know, in, in the medical yeah. community. And it really took this government-funded study to say, wait, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> women are dying from these chronic diseases. Because women were finally in the political arena. Yeah. And we need to find out why. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and when we look at, um, you know, my, my mother had breast cancer mm-hmm. um, around 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife also is a breast cancer survivor. Right. Um, and I can tell you that the what we know about breast cancer from a prevention, diagnostic, treatment, long-term follow-up from 1990 when my mom was diagnosed to when my wife was diagnosed just a couple of years ago. Completely different, I'm sure. I mean, it's a different universe. Yeah. And even, I would debate in the last five years, mm-hmm. things have changed so if, if if you know or are somebody who was a breast cancer survivor just five years ago, we just – we are learning so much more about it. And that's mm-hmm. another limitation to, you know, this massive study in 1990. You know, how were we actually selecting for women to prove that they didn't have breast cancer at 60-plus years old coming right. into the study when we didn't even have uh, – we, we didn't even have – um, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, mammography uh, protocols, standards until uh, 1994. Yeah. Digital mammography has taken it 
next level, and that mm-hmm. wasn't around until like 2000. Yeah. So in 1990, this the to be segmented and say, yep, nope, you're okay, you can come in because you don't have breast cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. how many of these women who are ultimately diagnosed with breast cancer had it, and we just missed it? Yeah. And the, the hormones are taking the blame. And I, we, the answer is we don't know. Yeah. But well, I, I have to ask these questions because, you know, breast MRIs right now can find a tumor one millimeter yeah. in diameter. One millimeter. I'm just – so – Well, and what about cardiovascular disease? Mm-hmm. You know, how many calcium scores have we done on our patients that – you know, they're sitting in front of you and seemingly seem fine, and then their calcium scores come back elevated. Yeah, and then they've got a 70% blockage yeah. in there. I you mean, know, people seven- that I would have never thought. <laughs> yeah, and in 1990, those people might have had perfect LDLs. They yeah. might have had a perfect EKG, mm-hmm. and then they were deemed no cardiovascular disease. Seven right. years later, they have an MI. Yeah. Like, so for as good as the study was – we 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 can't give it credit without giving it criticism. We have to look at it critically. Yeah. And it was the best study ever done. It's probably the best study that will ever be done, but it has glaring holes. Yeah. Not to mention it was evaluating synthetic hormones, not bioidentical. Um estrogen took the fall when really it's progestins that are really the culprit. They're just nasty. They're very inflammatory. Mm-hmm. They're dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous, 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 dangerous. Um, and somehow <laughs> estrogen took the fall and then it gets further pushed, this narrative that all hormones are bad. Right. And it's like, now, wait a minute. You know, as a woman, 30 years old with perfectly good hormone levels and perfectly good ovaries, how is estrogen bad? Yeah. It, it's by design, you know, uh, and, and then we look at, you know, uh, you know, I try to stay on point here. But I think I think if we say, what did this study prove? It proved a couple things for me. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to get your input on this. It proved to me that synthetic hormones are not safe. Right. Um, now. Clearly, there were some people who took synthetics who had some decent outcomes. Mm -hmm. So even if we were just discussing, like, take bioidentical off the the table. For the right person with the right risk profile who has the right symptoms and the right long-term goals, objectives, even synthetics might make sense Mm -hmm. for the right person. Yeah. But, But I think for me, it proved that Bioidentical and synthetic are not the same thing, and the only thing this study did was evaluate the safety of a synthetic variant Mm -hmm. of a God-given natural hormone. Yeah. To me, those are – you can't lump them together. They're two separate discussions. Um, It also tells me that every woman who is approaching menopause, this is something that they deserve to be able to have a conversation about. Right. So that they can make a decision for their own self. Yes. About what's best for them, what's best for their family, what's best for their long-term health. And they might decide, it's not for me. Yeah. And that's great. But they need the opportunity to be given truth Mm -hmm. and what the data say so they can then have an intelligent conversation with their family members, with their physician, and not be made to feel, oh, 
well, you want hormones. Well, don't you know? Like, that's, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I just, women should be able to have this conversation without being judged. Uh, and they should be able to have this conversation after being given all of the facts. Yeah. Not just facts that support the thesis that they're, you know, that they're bad. Yeah. What, 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 what did this trial, especially after digging into it in preparation for this episode, what, where mm-hmm. do you, what are your, what are your takeaway points? Uh, for me, you know, um, I, I was not aware of the political impetus for mm. this trial. And that was eye-opening me for me. Um, you know, um, just the history of, of where this trial originated and, and that. So for me, that was pretty eye-opening. Um, uh, and just what it means for the future, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, at, just hopefully not TMI, but at my recent <laughs> OBGYN visit, um, you know, he reminded me of my age and what's Thanks. gonna happen <laughs> in the next couple years as menopause approaches ending up with maybe a hysterectomy and i was like what (laughs) let's just take it one year at a time and and see what happens but you know just uh you know going through my nurse practitioner training recently you put women on the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time that's what the guideline says Mm -hmm. and so you know just keeping an open mind to how Mm -hmm. these guidelines are um formulated um but but knowing that that this trial was a game changer mm-hmm. for women um, and how far we've come, you yeah. know, in a short amount of time, really. That's another one that I'm, yeah, yeah, we've really come a long way in a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, and it's very hopeful, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that there are more people starting to have a voice around this. And, 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 and I think that women around this topic will, it's very promising that in the currently, and in the near future, you will have more and more opportunities to have conversations about this, about what it means f- for you individually. Right. And, um, well, Jen, this was great. This was great. <laughs> it's hard to believe this is the first time we've done this together. I know. After, yeah. I hope we uh, do so many more of these. Well, we've got another one. We do. And I, if this topic was interesting to you, then our next episode, I think, will be very, very interesting to you as we delve into bioidentical hormone replacement therapy for women. Um, based on what we have learned and kind of gone over today, what this means for clinicians like Jen and myself who do this at a very high level all the time. Yeah. And, and um, the hormones that we look at, the, how we approach optimization, um, common symptoms, um, and, and, and treatment strategies, specifically around thyroid. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few women walking around this planet who aren't curious whether thyroid is at play in their, uh, um, their health. Uh, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone uh, for women, I think those are... Um, some of the, the critical hormones that, that we manage all the time, and we can't wait to kind of dig into that for for you, the listener. Um, please feel free to share this with anybody you think would find it valuable. Um, you know, it's a real honor to be able to to do this and create this for for you, the listener. And our hope is simply that you would be able to walk away from this informed, um, encouraged, uh, and curious. Yeah. Um, and. Um, you know, certainly at any point, if you think we would be a great fit to help you along your journey, both uh, the amazing and talented Jen Justice <laughs> or myself would be happy to chat with you about 
what that would look like. So until we meet again, uh, take care. I want to thank you so much for your attention. Listen, I don't take it for granted. It means the absolute world to me. You can find out more about today's episode at brentwoodmd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, all the related links to this episode and tons of other resources. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you've already subscribed, then it would mean so much to me if you left a review. If you think we'd be a good fit to work together, or you would just simply like to know more about the concierge services that I provide my private clients, email us at membership at brentwoodmd.com. And now for the obligatory disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or the giving of medical advice as no doctor-patient relationship has been formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should seek the advice of their own medical professional providers.